Sure. My name is Melissa Labonte. I'm an assistant professor here. Fordham professor Melissa Labonte just got back from a 10-day trip to Sierra Leone. She was researching peace-building programs there. She'll explain what she was working on. She'll go into what happened during the 11-year civil war and where that left the country when the war ended and what that means about local governance structures. And then she'll stop herself. Representation. I can already tell that I've gone way too, it's too complex, like I've already done it. <laughs> my answer is overly my... complex. The story of Sierra Leone can be simplified. Exhibit A is Blood Diamond, the 2006 action film about the diamonds mined in Sierra Leone to profit warlords during the Civil War. Leonardo DiCaprio was the star. The New York Times called it an exceptionally foolish thriller. In America it's bling bling, but out here it's bling bang. Melissa Labonte is not interested in that story. She brought back stories of her own, about how Sierra Leone gets over 70% of its budget from foreign countries and non-governmental organizations, about how peace-building programs have to be careful not to give false hope to villages teeming with young ex-combatants, about how Labonte herself talked her way out of a police shakedown. And she, she waved us over, and my driver just said, This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. That story from Labonte is coming up, followed by a discussion with poet and professor Sarah Gambito, who co-founded a non-profit group for Asian American poets. Stay with us. The Civil War in Sierra Leone ended in 2002, and a slew of peace-building programs have since flooded the country to do things like help local authorities manage communities and provide basic services. Melissa Labonte has been studying these programs, and she went to Sierra Leone to learn more about the challenges facing the peace-builders in a country with such a short history of democratic government and such a fresh memory of war. This is a country that has had a major disruption. Violence is always a disruption in people's lives. It tears apart social fabric. It, it, it changes the levels of trust in a community. It also changes the way that people relate to those that are, um, have authority over them, elected officials and others. The one thing that, when you talk about that disruption, the one thing that has still, still exists in Sierra Leone is a sense of justice, is a sense of what's right and what's wrong. That moral compass hasn't gone away. And again, this is all despite you know the unbelievably distorted images of Sierra Leone as a place where everybody gets their hands cut off. I mean, amputation was a big part of the war, unbelievable human rights violations. So, so it's easy to think of Sierra Leoneans as just being you know savages. They they have a rich culture, rich tradition, good sense of justice. These are all things that need to be um, nurtured. They need to be nurtured in a very careful way. One of the main causes of the war was a widespread frustration about the concentration of power in Sierra Leone's capital. So after the war, local councils were established to provide basic services to small rural communities. Labonte likens the councils to mayors in the U.S. And now many peace-building programs are working more closely with those councils and finding that decentralizing power could take longer than donors and the international community will allow. I mean, it initially began um, by being targeted at the at the national level before um, all the local councilors were elected and put into their respective um, positions uh, you, you do have an existing system of governance at the local level the chiefdom system which continues to exist in parallel with local councils but but the peace building effort was largely directed at the government the government in turn uh, adopted a particular strategy for peace building 
and and that was uh, something called community-driven development. And the idea was that all this peace-building effort that was going on by external actors, such as the United Nations and uh, international non-governmental organizations, organizations like Save the Children, Catholic Relief Services, that, that they would have to partner with local actors in the work that they were doing that was funded as peace-building work. And so it began at that national level, was trickling down to the community level, largely through partnerships. But now the decentralization process has taken on a new, um, a new variation, which is that most of this work, most of this peace building work, should be interfacing directly with local councils and the chiefdom actors. And so it's through those agents that are the elected representatives of communities that, that this peace building support will trickle down to the local level. It won't have to channel itself always through that national level. And there's a problem here, as you've found in your research. Yeah, the assumption, which seems logical, is that by locating the working relationship between these various actors at the community level, that you're creating participation that is authentic and legitimate because you're asking local community voices what they want, what what they expect out of peace building. And that would be fine if the local councils had been in existence for generations. But because these are new political actors, very often what is happening on the ground now is you, you we find that um, local councillors don't have a lot of training in doing their jobs. They're not resourced particularly well, meaning they, they don't often have even the most basic of resources to carry out their, their work like an office. From the perspective of how to manage and govern a community, there are certain things that are needed and these local councils simply lack them. And on the flip side, communities themselves are not used to holding their local leaders accountable. It's just not part of a mindset. And so there has to be change on both sides if, in fact, governance is going to um, create a social contract, which, which is something that is, again, very common to people in the United States. We tend to think of holding our elected officials accountable at the ballot box. This is something that's very, still very new to most Sierra Leoneans living out in the rural areas. And where peace building comes in and where, there, there can, where problems can be created is when you have an influx of resources being utilized by elected officials who are now responsible for dispersing those resources and providing basic social services to their communities. If they're unable to do that effectively, there can be uh, dysfunctional outcomes or suboptimal peace-building outcomes that result in the frustration of community expectations, but also that can result in more corruption and the co-optation of these resources because they are valuable and they're very scarce. You're moving resources into a community that has very, very little. And so the chances of co-optation tend to increase. And that co-optation, again, will also frustrate uh, community expectations about what peace building is meant to do and, and the results that they actually can see from it. Part of the problem here is that local authorities who you know aren't, are on these new councils, they don't necessarily know what they're doing. They're, they're new to local government. Can you talk about that? Can you give me maybe an example of, of, of what that looks like? Sure. Um, one, of the, one of the responsibilities of local councils would be to create, for example, a budget, a working budget for their community so that the community can understand when taxes are levied on them. And, and if they're collected successfully, presumably, as is the case here in this country, those taxes are then redistributed in the form of social benefits to the community, whether it's garbage pickup, clean water, creation of schools and 
public places of, for gathering. And when some local councils have been able to collect taxes and have these resources, very often that's sort of that they go into a black hole and nobody knows where they've gone. If, if no services are being provided, suddenly, you know, the, the, the school that needed a roof isn't getting one, teachers aren't being paid. This is something that some local councils have a difficulty with, where the money kind of just goes away. They're supposed to be opening an account. There's, there's all these sort of what we might otherwise call Western provisions for governance that are being laid onto these local councils. And, and many of them just have never operated in this way. So they, they, don't, they don't open the account. They don't publish their budgets. They, there's no transparency when, when revenues are collected. And when services aren't delivered, people just, you know, they, they want to know what's going on. But where governing authorities don't have the expectation that they're going to be held accountable and where they don't have the skills to understand how governance typically, and again, I have to say this sort of with a understanding that, you know, we are talking about a Western system of governance being laid onto communities that have operated under different forms of governance. We're now laying on a new one. And so it's not immediately logical necessarily to local councillors that they should be transparent, that they should deliver on their promises. And and this is something that, that communities have gotten really frustrated with, especially with regard to education, especially with regard to sanitation, all the things that you just need to have a basic quality of life. The politics of this process is is really fascinating to me because decentralization is like a train that's left the station. It's something that uh, the government has signed off on and everyone has expected national ministries as well as you know local level officials and peace building actors. They're all expected to sort of embrace the the spirit of decentralization and actually implement it. And what I found was that, the places where there were the greatest challenges, for example, would be with national ministries who don't want to let go of their portfolios. They don't want authority to trickle down to the local level for obvious reasons, because they lose, they lose authority, they lose clout, they lose power. And at the same time, the NGOs seem to be frustrated that participation isn't always what it seems to be. Participation is not always what it's chalked up to be by the international community. And this again goes back to the idea of corruption and cooptation where you, you have a continual need for resources in areas that are extremely poor. And resources are something that the international community can provide. And so any resources coming in are a valuable thing. And this means competition. And that competition has led to, in some instances, corruption, poor program design. Sometimes NGOs have to work with what donors want. And sometimes donors, whether they be the UN system or foreign governments, they want to see it designed in a certain way, carried out in a certain way, and this ties the hands of some of the NGOs. Sometimes it's just a, a simple function of feeling like you're a drop in the ocean. I mean, this is not a problem that's going to be solved tomorrow. And NGOs are being asked to do work that, that takes generations, you know, to, to really demonstrate results. But the funding cycles that NGOs operate under are very short, six months, one year, two years. So if they're not able to demonstrate results in a short period of time, donors may decide to cancel their programs. In fact, many of the NGOs that I spoke to are, are very fearful that the NGO, that the international community is beginning to have some fatigue in its relationship with Sierra Leone and, and that you know, they can see on the on the horizon that there will be a day when much of the resources are just going to sort of walk away and go to other places. Are, are Sierra Leoneans also, are their expectations also very high? Are, are they also demanding results and quickly from NGOs? 
Yeah, that's a really good question, and and I think it depends on who you talk to. I think former combatants, ex-combatant youth, for example, who have been living without jobs, without any real access to education, any recourse to sustainable livelihoods, their expectations have continually been largely unmet by the peace-building enterprise, and they've just stopped trusting it in certain parts of the country. Um, there have been some programs that were described to me as, as sort of going from bad to worse to super worse. These were programs that were targeted toward ex-combatant youth, that these ex-combatant youth simply said, yeah, well, we'll believe you. On day one of the program, when we see some someone here, you know, with, with an NGO t-shirt and a four-wheel drive vehicle, with either, you know, the tools, the seeds, the resources, the money, whatever it is that's going into the program, we'll believe it when we see it. So, so their their expectations have been continually frustrated, and they haven't, you know, they haven't resorted to open violence. But, but it's an open-ended question as to how long frustrated expectations can continue without somebody saying, you know, there's got to be a better way, and that better way could be to to engage in use of force, which is something that's very familiar to them from their days as ex-combatants. Um, the trick is how to, you know, manage expectations in a way that. You don't set yourself up for failure, and at the same time, you know all there. I mean, like literally hundreds of different pieces of peace building have to come together if you're actually going to be able to fulfill those expectations. You you can train ex-combatants for jobs, but if there are no jobs and there's no functioning, really functioning economy, you have by definition frustrated their expectations. You've you've meant well, but you've really frustrated their expectations. So even the act of putting an NGO in Sierra Leone and, and starting a peace-building project, even that is a, a gamble because it's raising expectations and, you know, with the possibility that they won't be met? Definitely. I mean, in many post-conflict transition settings, you can often have a free-for-all where NGOs are just off doing their own thing, just hypothetically. I mean, the Canadians may want you to work on youth empowerment, but so may the, you know, the Norwegians. And you may have six youth empowerment programs going on that know nothing about each other's work. The UN is trying very hard. Um, they have a strategic planning unit, and they, they've got this joint vision strategy that they have with the government to try to encourage all the actors on the ground to be aware of what others are doing to complement each other's efforts. But as you might imagine, the government receives over 70% of its annual budget from external development resources. And, and that means you have lots of actors on the ground, and again, not all of them are paying close attention to what others are doing. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, and I'm talking with Melissa Labonte about her recent trip to Sierra Leone. Labonte was there to interview people that are part of peacebuilding efforts, but she managed to get some firsthand experience of one problem in Sierra Leone, the police. The story begins when Labonte was en route to the capital city, Freetown, with her driver, John. There is a seatbelt law in Sierra Leone, and for good reason. Traffic and, and the, the rules of the road are sort of, you know, wild and woolly. What's like a street scene in Sierra Leone? Oh, it's, it's, it's pretty chaotic. Throngs of people on the side of the road, a lot of squatters where people literally put up their houses, their shacks, right at the side of the road. The roads are very narrow. Many of them have speed bumps at about every maybe 50 feet and it's literally to keep people from killing themselves by driving too fast down the road. Traffic accidents are very common. Lethal traffic accidents are very common, particularly at night. And there's no ambulances that are coming, you know, to get you if you happen to get into an accident. So it's pretty chaotic. 
and and there were lots of roundabouts and and it just so happened that that my driver and I were coming from one meeting and we happened upon what was Congo Cross which is a, a roundabout one of the major roundabouts that sort of allows you to go east west we were approaching it and all of a sudden i mean the police are always congregating around these roundabouts and the Sierra Leone police are unfortunately undertrained underpaid Sometimes they go months without being paid. They're, they're, you know, and and so corruption is is very often associated with the Sierra Leone police. Uh, it's not uncommon for police to shake you down. And so my experience here is my this was my first shakedown, and and I I saw it coming the minute we approached the roundabout. There were a group of police, and one of them literally, I mean, it was like our eyes locked from like a hundred yards away, and she looked at me and she pointed and she she waved us over, and my driver just said, shh. You know the, the you know that that four letter word that begins with S and ends with T, and I thought, oh no, if he's worried, maybe I should be really worried. And we didn't know why we were being stopped, but we certainly, I mean, we pulled right over. It, the whole thing was sort of surreal. From the, I, I really was a deer caught in the headlights at that moment, especially when she said to me, "You don't have your seatbelt on. <laughs> I saw you put it on just now." I said, "What? You know, like what?" And then she said to my driver, "Your seatbelt is broken," and he had it on. And I'm thinking, is this, you know, am I being punked? I mean, you know, is there going to be a camera coming out of left field here? What, what's going on? And she said, you know, I, I'll send you to jail for this. And I thought, well, I know what the Sierra Leone jails are like. What are the Sierra Leone jails like? They're not a place you'd want to go. You wouldn't want to end up there. And you wouldn't want anyone you know to end up there. You know, you can't make a phone call to your lawyer. It's not like law and order. And people have been beaten. People have been sexually abused in prisons. Heaven help you if you get in there because it's, it is... And you're thinking yeah. not for yourself, but for your driver. Yeah, no, and my driver, and I could tell by the way he reacted, he was, yeah, he was really nervous. And this is his livelihood. I felt really responsible for him, and I thought, oh no, you know, this can't escalate to the point where they take him away. I mean, they, they, they wanted to see my ID. I didn't let them take it. They wanted to take it out of my hand, my passport, and I said, no, 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 no. You just gripped it. Yeah, I showed it to them through the open window, and they started to reach for it, and I just grabbed it back. But they did, they managed to get his ID away from him. They said the picture wasn't clear enough. It really wasn't him. Is this an expired, is this a fake ID? This is not your license. You know, I could see him getting more and more nervous. This is a a young man who moved to Freetown during the war, sends a lot of money back to his parents who live in in a rural community. You know, he's, he's trying to eke out a living. Getting a gig with me actually was earning him a lot of money relative to what he would normally be earning ferrying people around in the city. They dragged him out of the car, and then they wouldn't let him speak in English. And just from the nonverbals and the little bit of shoving and a little bit of the emphasis of, of what was being said, I could tell that they were they were completely berating him and threatening him. And then they wouldn't let him talk to me. So I knew they wanted a bribe. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what they're looking for. The question was whether they were going to take the bribe and then accuse us of bribing them and then throw my driver in jail, or whether we could just wait them out. And and that's what we did. It was unbearably hot. It was the middle of the day. We're in the full sun. And they effectively said, this can all go away. I thought, you know, A, on a principled basis, I have a real issue bribing someone. Call me old-fashioned, but, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, from, from the pragmatic standpoint, I realized that could get us into a deeper hole. I thought, I'm not going there. And you were doing all this calculus in your head? Yeah, it's really strange. Um, you have to just try to keep talking, and that's what I tried to do. So I, I just kept saying to them, you know, I'm here doing research. John is my driver. And, and she kept saying, you do know that if we take him to jail, you're going to have to come and testify at court. And I said, well, I'll do that. 
I'll do that. Tell me what the process is. And at a certain point, I think they just got sick of talking to this dumb American that couldn't get it through her brain that she needed to fork over some Leone's, you know. And they, they said, she actually leaned into me and was, you know, like this far from my face. And she said, I'm letting him go because of you. And for this, you should thank me. And she pointed in my face and I said, thank you. I did thank her. And I remember, I mean, I really, those are words that I don't, you know, it's, it's not like she had a gun in my head or anything like that, but, but she was very serious and, and she could have kept it going, but she decided to end it. You know, the police just haven't been trained. They're still not thought of as, as you know, a force that's there to serve and protect. In spite of that shakedown, Labonte is adamant that Sierra Leone not be essentialized, as she says, that the country not be thought of as just a war-ravaged place. If you talk about Sierra Leone as blood diamonds, if you talk about Sierra Leone as a place where there are lots of poor people and there are people that just fought a war, you might think of them as not having any dignity. But they do. They have enormous amounts of dignity. They want to be hardworking. They want opportunities. All these different pieces, just they have to... They have to fit together in a better way in order for those kinds of aspirations to really be realized. And the, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And that is the sad part, in spite of the diamonds, in spite of the dignity, in spite of the aspirations. The international community in general is, is good at doing some parts of peace building, but not others. And they're good at you know creating programs, but implementing them is another story. And all that complexity is something that on the one hand, makes for really good research, but is awfully hard to explain, you know, in general conversation with people. Thank you for, for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for thinking that, that you know, the things that I'm doing there are, are of interest. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure thank to you. have you here. Melissa Labonte is an assistant professor of political science at Fordham. Up next, creating a new space for Asian American poets who don't fit into the mainstream. I mean, there's the kind of Amy Tan... Joy Luck Club, <laughs> you know, Grandmother Mango Palms, right, which everybody is fond of, and, and you know, I am too, but this idea of like, how can we also encourage other voices that maybe the mainstream may not be ready for, but we are ready for, and we are writing at this moment. Coming up on Fordham Conversations. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Kundiman is a nonprofit created to nurture Asian American poets. At the center of the organization is the annual Kundiman Retreat. For about a week in the summer, selected fellows attend workshops led by selected faculty. People come from all over the country to learn and talk about poetry, to mentor and be mentored, to meet other Asian American poets. This year, the retreat was held at Fordham. In one workshop, held in late June, there are eight fellows sitting in a messy circle of desks. They're following the direction of Tan Lin, and he's just given them a writing assignment. Now remember, this should be fast and it should be fun. No one is smiling. <laughs> you should be smiling while you're writing. One of the fellows, Rachel Cruz, spills her coffee. She looks up. Does anyone have a napkin, she says. Another fellow, Rona Law, murmurs yes, and then, oh wait, she turns her napkin over. There's writing on the back. The first retreat of this kind was in 2004, after Sarah Gambito co-founded Kundiman with her friend Joseph Legaspi. They both wanted a way to work on their writing and create a community of poets. There was this deep sense of longing, he and I felt, for mentorship, 
right, that we had not experienced ourselves. And it, there was this kind of feeling like sometimes you have to become what it is you wish you had. And rather than saying, oh, we wish we had this, like our thought process became how can we just make this happen now. <laughs> A friend of mine, um, he read some book by Donald Trump, <laughs> And it was like, for success, it's like, you just can't let anything stop you. You just, like, go through it if you have to. And once we realized how committed we were to this vision, we just plowed through it. So what was that very first retreat like in '04? What it was is it was this outpouring of applications to the retreat from poets all over the country. We start with an opening circle where... We answer just a couple of very simple questions. Where, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? And what brought you to poetry? When you start off that way and you realize how much people need what you need, which is the sort of idea of the elevated word, uh, it's overwhelming. I think at that very first circle, like among people who had just met for the first time, there were, there were many tears, <laughs> like tears. Okay, you have eight minutes and then we'll workshop these poems. Back in the classroom, Tan Lin has just assigned a longer writing assignment, a love poem, with a few rules. There are some mandatory words, required length. And after eight minutes, the fellows share what they've written. This is Rona Law. You, my shoebox bread of yesterday, of tomorrow, of petunias on the windowsill. Darling foam core. Nice. <laughs> At Kundiman, people come in with this idea of being accepted and understood because you don't have to explain where you're coming from. You can sort of be more risky in terms of what you choose to write about. Here's Veronica Wong. Your shoebox lick my petunia schism, this soda narration of my patient radio of your pistachio arc. I mean, I think there's this sense of self-empowerment, right, rather than saying to the mainstream, you know, recognize us, recognize us. I think that... The, the idea is that, you know, we will recognize ourselves and work from the inside out. Here's Monica Reed. As you rummage through your coat at the airport, you'll find me waiting with you in your pocket, a salty pistachio. <laughs> okay, comments. And Jason Bayani. Okay. My left fist is a wasted shoebox. My resolve, a foam core ribcage softening around a shape. What is valued, valid and valued wears no discernible name. It's interesting to me that Kundiman is an East Coast institution. The patterns of immigration are, are much more recent than sort of West Coast patterns. And so growing up Asian American here on the East Coast is so much of like the a lawyer, or a doctor, or an engineer. The idea to choose the, the life of, a, of an artist is like incredibly difficult. And so to have a community that kind of supports you has been immensely rewarding. And you answer... This is Willie Lin. Sorry. Um, Valiance or valid. All day we blow words past each other like the people we didn't mean to be. A slow marriage or hectic work of clouds. Okay, let's talk about this. Now she's definitely got emotion in there and I want to talk about how she did it. Some very beautiful phrases. The Kundiman retreat ended this year the way it always does with fellows and faculty sitting in what they call closing circle, sharing what they got out of the week. Sarah Gambito remembers one of these circles from some years ago when one of the visiting faculty members was a poet named Bei Dao. The Chinese poet who was faculty for us a couple years back, um, 
one of his poems, um, The Answer, was chanted in Tiananmen Square when students were facing down tanks, right? He was faculty for us, and <laughs> at the end of the retreat, as I said, closing circle, there were pe- you know, many, many people who were weeping, and uh, he was very stoic, kind of watching everything, and I was thinking, he must think we're... I wonder what, I don't, I, just, I have no idea what he's thinking. And so I, I, after the circle, I said, you know, I want to just check in with you. What do you think? And he was like, why is everyone crying? And I said, you know, they cry because they've traveled many miles to be here. They've traveled many miles to study with you and to meet each other. I was like, they, they cry because they're moved. And he said, um, he said, me too. He was like, I am very moved. And he hugged me. <laughs> he hugged me. All with just this stoic expression on his face. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, right. Because, you know, people were talking about, you know, being a poet, sort of struggling, trying to find teaching jobs. He was like, I was a blacksmith. He was like, I could be killed for any word that I said. So I had to choose my words very carefully. And that was poetry. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Take care, Mary. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Sarah Gambito is an assistant professor and director of creative writing at Fordham University. Special thanks to Tan Lin, who teaches creative writing at New Jersey City University, and thanks to all the brave Kundiman fellows who read their rough drafts into a microphone. If you want to learn more about Kundiman, visit the website kundiman.org, spelled K-U-N-D-I-M-A-N. That's it for Fordham Conversations. You can find archived shows on WFUV.org or subscribe to our podcast. Become a fan of our Facebook page, search WFUV's Fordham Conversations, or follow us on Twitter. We're registered as Focon, F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be your host next week. Stay tuned for Cityscape at 730. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson.